Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first TAFCast, the UNISTAF podcast, which gives you a heads up on recent and upcoming changes and additions within UNISAF. A chance for us to share some insight on what and why we do what we do, and in future episodes, an opportunity for you to ask questions and discuss topics directly with the UNISTAF team. I'm Zero, and I'm joined today by fellow staff members and the wizards behind the website, Ben and James. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. So, before we move into the topics that we have for today, for those who are perhaps not aware, it would be a good idea just to touch on exactly what Unistaff is, why we exist, and, and what it is we do. Well, I think we've said it before, I think Unistaff's role has probably changed quite a bit in the, in the last two years, um, certainly as, Uni, as Unitaf has grown. Um, but ultimately, it, is, it essentially is what steadies the ship and makes sure that we stay true, I guess, to what we originally planned to do with Unitaf. Because uh, I think a lot of groups similar to ours have a, a habit of just doing the same things. We, we try to make a stand to do things pretty differently, which I think is obviously evident to anyone that's in Unitaf. Um, the chain of command has taken over a lot of what Unistaff would have done you know, in the early days, if you like. Um, and so it sort of left us to deal with the long-term strategy, which ultimately is what is what your staff is all about. We we typically look at stuff that's, you know, 12 months ahead or what we're, we're planning on doing over a, a year, whereas the chain of command is looking, you know, week, two weeks ahead, if you like. So I was just about to say that we've probably taken more of the back-end role where we're looking a lot more into the future now, where the NCOs can deal with the present. Yeah, very much sort of acting like both sort of project managers and also like the first and last line of defense for UNITAF as a like an individual body in, in and of itself, making sure that none of the changes that, that happen um, compromise what the idea behind UNITAF is. Yeah, and I, I think for people that, you know, are relatively new to UNITAF, they might not have heard of UNITAF before, and that might be by by design. You know, it's not something we shout about all the time, but we've known each other for probably something like eight years. And there's some people in UNITAF that I've known for 10 or 12 years. The reason we have it is it's through experience. Uh, in, in groups like ours, you can have the, the loudest minority and it's important to have a body essentially that's able to filter out noise and understand where we're going, why we're going there and communicate that. Um, and so you take things like the annual survey and all the after action reports and stuff. That's essentially the the role of unit staff is to filter out the noise and truly understand, I guess, what the overall picture is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like it's a, it's good to have, um, you know, like the, the ultimate decision being made by the smallest group of people possible so that you don't have, uh, rifts forming or groups forming. And obviously at the moment, um, although obviously that, that has changed in the past and could change in the future, the fact that there's three of us means that there's no way for us to ever, uh, you know, get into a stalemate if there is an issue. Yeah, of course. And I think, I think that's a good point. Ha- the, the people in Unistaff has changed and the size of Unistaff has changed and our role has changed. Um, and there's no reason why it wouldn't change again in the future, but it, it is essentially a small group of people and I presume will always be a small group of people. Uh, because we're able to have lots of lengthy discussions where, you know, if you had to coordinate with a lot of people, like we do with org COC meetings, it takes a lot of organization to do and you can't do it very frequently either. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that sums it up pretty well. So let's uh, jump into a retrospective for the past month or so. We saw this month our 40th official operation and Unitaf has grown to the biggest we've ever been with a whopping 105 active members on the roster. 
and that's set to rise steadily with around 20 to 25 new uh, inducted members a month, which is a huge achievement. Uh, we've seen the Liberation Server on Lithium completed, which took a total of 98 days, 21 hours to complete, and a total of over 2,000 up four casualties. So a shout out to our guys who play there. And um, we have in a little bit some info on the changes come into the Liberation Server, so stay tuned for that. And finally, we saw the uh, launch of the much-awaited campaign center. So let's discuss that now. James, if you could perhaps give us a little bit of insight as to what exactly the campaign center is and uh, what it can do for us as a group. Before we do that, let, um, just to correct that point, I think the stat, I think, is that it's the first month of January 2021 that we've exceeded two, two figures, the number of more operations than there were days, more deployments than there were days, but also the first time we've done more than 40 deployments in a single month. And that has echoed across the board, like you said, with 105 active members, which I think is about 95 individual deployees and a total attendance of nearly 800 in, in January, which if you, if you take the active members, which is 100, you take the, the number of deployments, which is 800, what that tells you is that each person on average is deploying eight times a month, which is more than twice a week. So not only are we probably, if you exclude Star Wars, one of the largest groups, certainly in the top 10 uh, in what we do, but we are probably a, be willing to be corrected on this, the most active. I don't know of any other group of our size that's deploying anywhere near that that amount of frequency so like you say it's a massive achievement yeah and it, it far exceeds what we would um ever ask anyone you know our, our initial sort of not necessarily requirement but what we ask of you know our members is that you play you know once twice a month so the fact that people are deploying you know twice a week well, is uh is, is great and it shows that we do it we're doing something right that people are enjoying the missions that they go to yeah absolutely i was going to say recently it's been a good two to three people per day joining which has been crazy yeah and a lot of people picking up the uh what's become affectionately known as the no life medal i think we've given it out twice now but i've got three others pending so these are people that have done seven 14 or 21 deployments uh in a row so like 21 days in a row like with no no break if you like which is crazy uh but anyway the, the question was about the campaign center and we say we've launched it um in in a way we have what we've essentially done is laid the groundwork for it for people that aren't familiar with the term campaign center and what we mean by it it's essentially moving our operations out of the old op center vibe which was uh, each operation was sort of its own thing and they weren't really linked together very well bringing it more into a campaign system where you know brimstone if you take one of our current campaigns we have a, a place where we can go where we've got things like you would have on liberation like a, a civilian reputation rating you know what what the local police think of us what the other belligerents in that war think of us and and bring everything all the campaign objectives together asset management so on and so forth and tie it all together into a really nice system you know where you've got like mugshots of all the high value targets and stuff so when we say we've launched it what people will notice is we've changed the design of the op center. We've got placeholder pages in for everything to do with the campaign center, but we haven't launched all the features of it yet because to put it mildly, the campaign center alone is more complex. It's the, the work involved in, in releasing it to its full extent that what we've got planned is bigger than the rest of unitedtaskforce.net as it already stands. Like it's a huge undertaking, but, but it's going to be released in stages. So we've got the, uh, like human intelligence, so the 
mugshots of all these sort of high value targets is the next thing that we're going to release and then shortly after that the like intel package segment and then you'll have like facebook feeds with intel for all the major campaigns and stuff like that and it'll all be tied together in one place but we'll we'll release them in stages because of how large the undertaking of work essentially is yeah, I mean, it, it used to be a thing that we would uh, say a lot to people, and it's um, something that we we don't say that much uh, anymore because we've we've got so much in place now. But uh, UNICEF is and, and probably always will be uh, very much a, a work in progress. So it makes sense that when we release something like the Campaign Center, that it has a lot of the groundwork there, but it's not going to have all the features that it will have eventually. So if as a, as, a, as a regular member, you see something new like the Campaign Center and you see a lot of it isn't there, it's always a good idea to just sort of remember that everything that we do in Unitaf is a, is a work in progress and often is a, is a, a, a trial and error um, exercise for, for everything that we know and all of our experience. Sometimes you just don't know how something is going to pan out until people actually start using it. Yeah, I think so. And I guess you can just go back to first principles of the campaign center and to explain it to people and say, why are we doing it? Well, I think our approach is if, if you do so, if you shoot a civilian in game, that should have a knock on effect to that campaign, not just that mission. That is essentially the approach of the campaign center. And it's the same as if I always use this example to people when I came up, when we were talking originally, you know, two years ago about the idea of the campaign center is I like the idea of having a Chinook, which, you know, you've bought through some means and, you know, to have the Chinook, you've got to have a base, you know, that can support a Chinook, you know, like an air base or a forward operating position. And, you know, if you fly 40 combat missions with that Chinook, you know, the, the, the air crews that fly it might give it a nickname, you know, and it could have its own dossier profile and you could see that this, this particular Chinook with this serial number has got this nickname and it's flown 40 combat missions. You know, and then some guy one day is flying it and crashes it into an electric pole or something. And suddenly that's got a lot more weight behind it than if you just had this Chinook which just appeared out of nowhere, crashed and then you respawned it to pick them up again if you get what I mean. So just just building a lot more behind what we're doing and specific to what Unitaf does is we do most of our stuff outside of the game and not in it because we're conscious of the fact we've started an organization like this you know eight years into the development cycle of a game which is going to have a limited lifespan and so whatever we do we've got to kind of do it with that in mind that we should be able to lift it up and move it to whatever the successor of Armour 3 ends up being. Yeah that's a, that's a good point is that I think the campaign center really expands what we can do because with that it moves a lot of stuff to the outside of game so rather than having to be in game to you know sort for a mission you'll have people planning um organizing logistics all outside of game with the website you know and that would just add a completely new dynamic to which i don't think any other uh, unit has or has ever seen before yeah it very much um can very much sort of uh, open up uh, the idea that you know there's a possibility of tying other games into the those sort of behind the scenes logistics uh, type things. Just just going to say that I mean you could have um, we could identify through a and I think we're going to talk a lot more about like different types of bots so we won't get onto that subject just yet but um, we could identify an anti air position for example or a stronghold in a recall operation for Brimstone. Um, there isn't any major reason why we couldn't use a DCS operation, for example, to complete that as an objective as part of the campaign and advance what we're doing on the ground. So like like I say, we're certainly not against that. I, I think we've discussed it before, using other games as well as just the one that we, we, we base Unitaf around to advance progression of 
of our campaigns. Yeah, and uh, I think some of the things that the campaigns tend to do is, is like Ben said, is is build that uh, that out of game aspect. There's a lot of stuff you can do with armor, um, but there is only so much you can do with armor. And I think it, uh, the more stuff that you can do that is uh, out of game that builds depth into our campaigns is is only a positive. Yeah, and it's easy to tie together because even if you don't play DCS, you know, you go to the campaign center. And someone could have posted an update on the Intel feed that says, you know, on Saturday we flew a sortie and we took out the AA position in Syria, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then on Sunday, you know, that position is neutralized and you can execute whatever the operation was. And if they failed their sortie on Saturday, you know, that would have a knock on an impact on on Sunday. So it's a way of pulling it all together in a meaningful way. And we've seen, you know, I don't always like to say this publicly, but like we've seen, for example, systems that we put in like, um, the one-up system and stuff or not even the one-up system like the training system you know people will go to an ftx purely to get the hours you know for no other reason and so with the campaign center we'd fully expect that uh people will actually care about the data you know we already saw in brimstone when we mentioned about you know the civilians and the local population that people care about it and if other people are doing stuff that might have a knock-on impact on that that you know they're not necessarily happy about it, and and in effect, that's what we want. We want people to see meaning behind what we're doing, rather than just you know shooting pixels. Absolutely, and I think it also brings further meaning to the assets that we use in game. If uh, we have an Apache, for example, then we've spent a certain amount on that, and we know that it's our only Apache that we've got currently. Um, there's a greater emphasis on using those assets uh, in the you know in the correct way, and not sort of throwing them away because you know that you know, well, another one will be spawned either in that mission or in the next mission. And, you know, also opens up uh, potential for uh, interesting missions. You know, if a, if a vehicle gets damaged, but it's not destroyed, you know, we can, you can then add, you know, tack that onto, onto the objectives and, and uh, go and sort of rescue it and try and bring it back to base. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, we did that a few times in Herrick, which was, um, you know, great for the engineers, but um, yeah, with the campaign center, that should really sort of become a, a a normal thing as such you know people will be a lot more conscious about the vehicles they're using and probably a lot more conscious towards the their sort of value of life inside um that mission so hopefully assets and stuff will become a lot more meaningful and you know th- it will hopefully change the dynamic of how missions are played is in that such yeah and i think um i don't know if this is the right segment for this but the other thing that the campaign center at least we're trying to do from a strategy point of view with the campaign center is in the past we've always ran a sunday we've not missed a sunday operation i think in maybe in a task history um of 450 operations or whatever we're at now we've missed a sunday once i think due to like some technical issue um but what we what we want to kind of do is move away from the idea of saying to people hey if you've got a campaign idea send it to us and then that person runs that campaign I think as staff, we we want or just as amount, just the same amount of work. Sorry, would go into those two Halloween specials we did on Halloween, than probably would have put into the entirety of Vertex, because of the amount of technical work that happens to create the PBOs and the mission files and the loadouts and stuff. So, um, campaign mission making, the mass production of missions, is what allows us to get to a point where we've done 450 missions, and in this month, in January, have done. 40 deployments in a single month we wouldn't have been able to do that without a campaign approach to to what we do yeah exactly uh, not to put either of you too much on the spot but um 
what do you think will be the next uh, feature of the campaign center that people can expect to see? We've asked the Brimstone team essentially what what they want to see first, and I, I would have liked to have seen the whole thing implemented for Brimstone. That was kind of the intent, but things don't always pan out that way. A lot of people don't understand this, but this uh, this isn't our job. Um, it's amazing how much we can get done, though. Um, the feature where essentially you'll see profiles for not necessarily high value targets, but let's call them people of interest on a campaign so they could be civilians they could be enemies they could be friendlies they'll have their own website profiles this is 90 percent complete already um and it serves two purposes um they can be linked so like we won't necessarily have a mission where it will say the purpose of this mission is to capture this person they'll just be people that are published so there'll be like you know six mug shots if you take something like parable which is heavily py involved you know there's lots of people of interest um there will just be a mugshot list like most wanted list and it's up to the players to to work out you know maybe they find a guy in a in a compound and he's got his hands up maybe they alt tab out and look at the mugshot list and then they say oh you know that's that guy and then they can look into his profile and ask him some questions or whatever and we kind of want the players to be able to add to people's profile so if we have a person interest but we don't know anything about them they affiliate and see that information so when they're role playing they can obviously click on the website so um that will be the next one to rid the region of isis essentially things like the reputation ratings and things like that yeah that's really interesting stuff i'm, I'm sure i'm joined by a lot of the uh, regular members in in uh, being excited about seeing some of those changes right let's move into the in the works segment where we take a look deep inside the machine that is UNITAF and discuss some of its uh, inner workings. One of the things I know has been a recent topic of discussion, not just within UNISTAF, but also the uh, group as a, as a whole, uh, which is the slotting up on Orbats and the supply and demand of slots. Also, I've heard it lovingly referred to as the slot race. So just to give an example, uh, so some people have a very uh, few select roles that they prefer to play. And obviously, certain roles require a tier in a specific area, uh, but those slots are filled very quickly, especially when it comes to the more popular, uh, limited and specialized roles. Uh, and for some, notably new members, there can be a sort of catch-22 whereby someone needs operational hours to progress in that tier, but can't slot and therefore uh, achieve that tier and, and are sort of stuck in a sort of uh, all-bat limbo. Um, so let's touch on on that topic and uh, our approach to it and some possible solutions. Yeah, it, like you say, it's a massive topic. Um, we've just gone through a week where I think, uh, like I say, a massive conversation on Discord about it as well. And it's something that we've not only known about, but have been discussing for some time. And again, going back to what we said about Unistaff at the start, um, I think it would have been easy to make a change really early on. But maybe the reason why we're slow to these things is we have to be really methodical about how we do it. But to give people an idea, I mean, we've probably known or expected about this since around the time we introduced the automatic one-up system. Because that, in a way, was a precursor to this discussion. Because from a technical standpoint, that had to be done before we could do anything with this. Like That had to be achieved uh, before we could do anything with this. The second point, I think, is... We knew this was going to happen. Like we're not not trying to say we're massively intelligent, but um, this is linked heavily to our current tier system. And when we put that tier system in, we we knew we were going to have this problem at scale. 
and we simply took the attitude that that was a problem for another day, which to some extent is still the attitude we have. But uh, now is that day uh, to to start making changes to that system. Um, and we'll just simply approach it with an attitude of, okay, we've got 100 people now. The last time we changed the system, we had 30 people. Um, so when we change the system this time, we need to make sure that it's going to work for 300 people. If that indeed is our aim, I don't want to scare people um, <laughs> with with our growth plans, but um, it's not to say that we're aiming for 300, but, but we try and build the systems to support you know mu much more people than we currently have. Um, and so the question becomes, if we had 300 active members today and we put an orbit out for 60 people, what might that slotting process look like? And is it a fair slotting process? And I think that's a good starting point because obviously this is not the first time we've discussed it as Unistat, but we're sort of rediscussing it, I suppose, in the podcast form. But I think that's a good place to start because the biggest problem with the current system is 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 fairness. And we talked a little bit at the start about this sort of record stat of we've deployed 800 slots uh, over 100 people, which means that on average people are playing eight times a month but we know for a fact that that's obviously not true because we've got people that are deploying 20 times a month so that means we've also got people that are deploying a lot less and the question becomes those that are deploying a lot less are they doing that by choice or is it because of lack of supply of those slots and we know that in a lot of cases the people that are deploying less than eight times a month in this case are not doing it out of choice but purely because there's a lack of supply of those slots and the people that are deploying you know 15 20 times a month they are they have all of the prerequisites for a lot of slots so they struggle less in competition so our approach in essence has to be or is rather on the solutions that we're putting forward and it's important to say and i'm sure we'll get into detail about this that there is no one solution to this problem uh it's going to be a range of solutions and the second point is that Anything that we do to address this uh, is aimed at increasing fairness uh, across the board, both for newer players, which is where predominantly where the problem is, is with newer players, uh, but increasing fairness across the board. Um, I, hope, I hope that's fair to say. So if we just take one of those things, um, it might be addressing the balance of um, how do we penalize in a way someone that's played 20 times in the last 30 days and give a slight advantage to the person that's only deployed five or six? Um, a lot of this revolves around when all bats get released, which is usually in the late European time zone, which is not always favorable to our US time zone friends. You know, Unitas got, I checked before we came on, 31 countries now, 25% uh, US and Canada, 30%. UK, the rest of it is Europe and around the world. So, you know, people don't get the opportunity to be on these orbats the second they get released. And so the first point of action that people I think should expect is UNITAF will move away from this sort of single period in time. So the at seven o'clock exactly, sixty slots open and it's like, you know, you've chucked a bleeding fish into a piranha tank, you know and much more into a system of a extended period of time where maybe the timers for each person are slightly different. And so the, all of those slots aren't necessarily opening at exactly the same time for everyone, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like a, a, a staggered uh, orbit release to, to make it uh, fairer for people in, in different time zones. I think that, that, that would certainly help. I know another thing that we've uh, discussed is um, the idea of having uh, preferred roles on an orbit 
So perhaps you can you can slot into your favorite you know DMR slot, for example. Um, but then you can also say my second choice would be this, my third choice would be this. Um, and then if we had a system whereby the website uh, looked at you and said, well, you have slotted as a DMR for the past six missions, and this fellow here hasn't slotted at all in the past six missions, but he's put it as his second choice. Uh, and you know perhaps he will get access to that slot over you and you'll be put into your uh, second position. Yeah, we did. Um, ben, ben might mention it. I mean, we did discuss that in quite some detail. Um, but I think it's important to say that that specific idea, I think we binge on the purposes that um, in an ideal world, it sounds great. It's sort of like you select your top five slots on an orbit um, and then the system executes some sort of like transactional level thing that places everyone in their best ideal slot. The problem is that misses the entire point of for probably 60, maybe 70% of people deploying on an orbit. Their choice is dictated not necessarily by the slot, but by the people. And so you don't have that that benefit. So uh, I think we discounted that that idea um, pretty early on. But it's also important to say that a lot of this discussion, because there's a lot of great ideas throughout the chain of command, and, and we um, consult them all, all the time about these sort of things. And we've also drawn a lot of inspiration for for these new systems off the survey as well, because it featured pretty heavily in the survey. Is um, that we take a, a systems-led approach on it. So it's easy to come up with a great idea about how to change maybe the Orbat system, which, by the way, even though there's some maybe imperfections with it at the moment, it's the single most successful system in Unitaft. Like, it's literally why we still exist. If you ask anyone and you look at the the annual surveys and stuff, it's the thing that everyone talks about. Like, it's the flexibility of what we do and so we must we, we always got to be careful not to change something that's already working we've, we've got to be really super careful about how we augment it and build on it you know it's an it's an issue we're aware of but the problem with something like this is it's a delicate issue and it's not something that we can just change instantly um it's something that we've got to pretty much take our time make sure anything we do we see all the positives and negatives on it and then go from there rather than just implementing a system which could eventually you know uh, fail the orbat system and you know effectively hamper us um rather than uh, uh build on the system we already have yeah absolutely i think that it's a lot of uh, that sort of really does sort of tie into a lot of what unistaff is about which is um is looking into the future isn't it is is looking six months a year down the line and saying well if we made this change now Yes, it might be great now, but what effect could it have in a year's time when we've got an extra 50, 100, 200 members? Yeah. But I think in terms of being specific about what what we do agree on and what we know we can change, um, as Ben said, it's not going to be a massive change because, again, I feel like that would you know upset the apricot a little bit. There's probably four or five interventions we will make over the next let's say, month, two months, to be uh, relatively realistic. Um, and, and like we said at the start, that will always come from the angle of increasing fairness. Now, if you're attending 20 missions a month on average at the moment, which I know some people are, um, <laughs> without naming any names, it might seem unfair to you. Uh, but if you look at it on balance, it, it, it's still increasing fairness. Um, because what we want to do is be fair to everyone. So. 
what what people may see and like I'm happy for Ben and Zero to correct me at any point if I'm uh, misrepresenting things we've already discussed, but essentially uh, we may introduce some level of dynamic um, deployment buttons that take into account how active you are and, and maybe give a slight advantage to people that are not as active as you. Not not huge advantage, but an advantage so much so that in the first 24-hour period of an all about before one-up start, that there is a more balanced uh, opportunity for everyone to get a slot that they want and that opens up another whole element of, of factors that we'll need to consider which is why any changes like this will do at a micro scale so we're not going to introduce for example like five new um, interventions into the orbit system at the same time because then we won't know what the result of each one is and what impact it has we will have to do them one by one so the first one that we you may see and again we would communicate ahead of time anyway is a way of dealing with that so how do we stop for example on a on a, on a small orbit like parable uh people that are have really fast internet connections that is in their time zone and, and you know they keep taking the slots and yet you've got someone that's never been able to get onto a parable orbit so that to me would be the first thing we'd look at and we've also had suggestions from the chain of command and we've also discussed about whether we would do that globally like across um, based on how active you are or whether we would do that based on how active in a certain role you were so for example if if someone was um always being a medic like always a medic and that's the only role they ever took is that uh, we might give a slight priority to someone that's not been a medic in the last 30 days or not been a medic 10 times in the last 30 days um I think the detail about how we do that is still very much up for question, but that um, that is essentially, I think, the first line of attack for fairness. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that is important to say is that uh, uh, you know there's a especially in this particular segment, like there there may be things that we discuss that we haven't actually worked out fully, um, but it's still nice to give uh, you know the regular members a bit of an insight as to as to what we're doing and what our approach is. Um, I think one of the other things that we've also discussed in this in this area, which uh, ties into a lot of other things, um, is the idea of having uh, perhaps like specialist roles on an orbit that not only do you need a tier in, but that you need like an extra level of uh, doesn't really have a name yet, but like an extra level of qualification almost, um, which ties in uh, to the, uh, the the new aircrew program and the idea of uh, advanced infantry training and the possibility of special forces and stuff in the future. Yeah, and I think I think what you said before is a really good point, which is uh, anyone listening to this, and it, this is why we don't always uh, discuss stuff publicly and limit our serious. Is um, in most cases we're still not a hundred percent sure about the exact method to take. We know the general direction of travel, and we don't want people to speculate on it and. To some extent, we are going to do a bit of speculation in this discussion. Um, but the point you've just made about um, essentially, we I think we're referring to on the roadmap as the alternative uh, progress, progression system or the alternative qualification system, which is essentially the best way to look at it is we knew, again, we knew when we put the current tier system in, which for anyone that's old enough to remember, replaced a qualification system that came before it. We knew that we were going to have this problem of the tier system is not perfect because it's it takes a general clinch at somebody's experience by going, how many hours have you spent doing that thing and practicing that thing? And okay, you're now this experienced. We knew when we put it in 18 months ago that it was going to result in two things. 
um, some people would be deemed by the system, let's say, to be a tier three pilot. Let's not point any fingers, but let's say Ben is a tier three pilot. But I see Ben flying in a mission, and you know, he clearly he's not a tier three pilot, or he, he doesn't have the ability of a tier three pilot. Because the system is an experience-based system, it's not a capability-based system. And on the flip side, we knew we could have someone join, like uh, everyone remembers Wilson. He's currently retired now because he plays uh, what's it, GTA role player, whatever. He he's obviously an inevitably good pilot, and on day one, you can see that he's far superior than Ben in this example at, at flying. But our system says he's tier zero, and so I think what Zero is talking about is. And it's slightly separate to the slot race and the supply and demand, but I suppose it is in a way tied into it. It's a way of identifying those people. So if if we have someone join that is a better pilot than all of our tier four pilots, we need a way of assessing that capability, not experience, because it's not experience. It's capability, or you can call it talent if you want, but I'd rather call it capability. That person is overly capable. So we want to give them access to those positions, but we still want to prioritize the people that have both. So well, if we have two systems running alongside each other, um, and if somebody has the capability and the experience, so in, in layman's terms, if they have the tier and the qualification, then they should be prioritized over somebody that only has the tier, for example. Um, and likewise, if somebody has the tier, sorry, has the qualification and not the tier, they should not be prioritized over someone that has both, if that makes sense. But our system, at the moment at least, puts the most experienced person in every role it can. In the future, I think what we're simply saying is it will try and put the most experienced and capable person in every position it can. And I think what you're maybe talking about is that we've had discussions about having operations where essentially everyone would need to be capable. Yeah, or, or indeed having a uh, you know a, a fire team, like a fire support group, or maybe even a, a squad that only has those uh, roles and then perhaps they get given slightly different tasking based on the fact that we we know, or as a field leader, you know that uh, that entire group of people are, are are capable and experienced. Yeah, and, and I think we've, we used to have on the roadmap and we had a, a debate about, a debate, we had a discussion about it recently about having fixed teams. I mean, we're probably, again, one of the largest, certainly organized close towards serious milsims that doesn't have fixed teams like out of all our 450 deployments never ever have we used the same orbat once with the, and certainly never with the same people in the same composition like it's always been different which is amazing when you think about it um the level of sort of realism that we've achieved in missions is like it's not perfect but as we say we're always a work in progress but considering that fact it's actually quite amazing um I think rather than going down that route of fixed teams, what we're ultimately saying is that UNICEF could start producing, and this is where it ties in, I think, with slot supply and demand is, we could start producing operations that have other requirements. So like we've already seen, I'm sure people are aware of like the org COC missions, where we have a minimum rank of corporal, that's just to get the COC playing together. But we could also do that based on other things. We could do minimum rank private, which you know, private now is um, is generally harder to achieve than it ever was before. We have a lot of recruits at the moment. We've got something like thirty recruits because of the gap between recruit and private that we've made in recent policy changes. But on the flip side, if we were going to do that, we would also do the opposite. So if we were going to have minimum rank private or minimum rank PFC operations, we would also have maximum rank recruit operations 
so that we are giving um, opportunities to both levels of experience. So it's important to say this with a caveat because we are sort of speculating about what changes we may make in 2021. But when we've discussed it, it was to be clear that if we're going to go one way, we're also going to do it in the opposite way. So if we're going to provide special forces operations for privates, PFCs and above, uh, or qualified people or whatever that metric is, we're also going to do the opposite in the other direction so that we we are maintaining good supply of slots, if you like, to both uh, segments. Yeah, and I think that would, uh, especially the maximum uh, rank missions uh, would really go, would really help towards those people, uh, especially the, the newer members who who want to get tiers in field leadership or marksman or anti tank or medic, um, but but you know generally speaking can't get on to the to the uh, the, the regular missions uh, because those slots are so popular. So that that would really give them that chance then to to get their their foot on the ladder, so to speak, and. Uh, start advancing in the the area of you know that they're interested in I, th- I think that's something i'd like to add as well is um if you know speaking to the regulars if they if you are interested in you know going down a field leadership route you know speak to your nco and it's something that we can organize and um you know put put you in a place where you can get the chance to lead with uh you know with a an experience to ic etc that can help you and give you like critical feedback on how to improve and uh what you need to do i think it's quite important that people sort of remember that and speak to their ncos and it is something that we will facilitate absolutely i think it's it's something that we perhaps don't do enough of publicly which is to to make people aware that, that there are no roles that are closed off that we, that we want to have as much of an open door policy as we can and if, if someone is interested in progressing in a certain area that they do only have to ask uh, either their NCO or or someone someone else who they know is interested in that particular role, and we can we can give them the, the support and the training and the and the uh, you know the slots on a mission that they need in order to get that experience and training. Yeah, I think if we look at the problem statistically as well, because we know predominantly the problem with slot supply and demand, whilst it is probably noticeable certainly to privates and PFCs uh, on a tier basis, it's a lot more noticeable to recruits. And it's it's sort of a problem we've created ourselves as well, because for those that are aware, we essentially doubled the requirement of what a, of what a recruit would need to achieve to make private. So the requirement that they had in the past, I think actually in the past, they just had to complete the recruit training, right? And then they made private. Am I right in saying it? Yeah. That's... Yep. Yeah. And then, we, and then we reversed it to say, so for those that are newish, a recruit now is essentially what private was before and candidate now is essentially what recruit was before so going from recruit to private now that length of time um is much longer and so what we've done is we've kind of created this this vacuum where we haven't got enough slots for these people um and maybe that was a little bit of an oversight in hindsight but i suppose what i'm trying to say is our orbats, our standard operating procedures mean that on average about 40% of the slots available on any orbat, specifically if we look at like Sunday, Sunday's about 60 slots. If you take three members per fire team are roughly going to be recruits, then about 40% of that total orbat will be available to new people, to recruits, so on and so forth. The problem is we have more of those people than we have availability. And so the point about having um, more operations that cover 
So minimum rank this, maximum rank that, is that, as Zero said, if you take things like designating batsmen, squad medics, fire team leaders, on an all-back where we've got maximum rank recruit, we can shove a bunch of NCOs in our operation and and have recruits across all role specialisms, including pilots and game masters and stuff, not only get to know the newer folk, because that's something that is, is also difficult to do, but also they're able to um, not have to compete with people that already have the requirements of these roles um, to, in order to get them and gives them a bit of a step up in progressing our system um, and doing it with, um, you know, maybe at a slower pace or whatever. But again, it's important to say, even though we refer to these people as recruits, a lot of people that are recruits in Unitaf are not new to the game, are not inexperienced at the game. They're just inexperienced within Unitaf. And so these operations generally are, will be very successful. And did I say it, sometimes maybe even more successful than than the others. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think it will work. Um, and I think it's just important for us to say that we'll think very carefully about how we schedule those. What we don't want to do is replace 40 deployments a month with 20 min, min rank ops and 20 man, max rank ops. That's obviously not what's going to happen. Um, if we start to do them, they will be very carefully scheduled um, on top of the, I guess, what we call the mainstream schedule. And so I think, I think the other idea, um, one of the other interventions that we'll more than likely make to solve this problem, which Zero mentioned at the start, which is this chicken and egg scenario that was maybe perhaps unintentional, which is that you can have um, somebody that's uh, tier zero at something, Let's take marksmanship as, as an easy example because marksmanship is something that traditionally we've had a lot of people interested in. And we've recently started deploying marksmanship slots pretty much in every squad uh, by default, which is something we're only able to do, really, I suppose, because of the numbers we have. Is if somebody um, is tier zero in marksmanship and they want to get a marksmanship slot, it's obviously very difficult to get because you've got a lot of people that are qualified in marksmanship, which are more than likely they're going to take that slot within the first 24 hours which means you're not going to get access to it. But you need to get that slot in order to get Tier 1 or to get Tier 2 because you need the combat experience. So other than the stuff we've already spoke about, which is like having minimum, maximum rank operations that would give, uh, which will give you know newer people access to designated maximum slots without actually having to compete, so that will be part of the solution. Um, the other thing that we've looked at is what we're referring to as Brits, obviously, but may not translate to the other... 32 countries of Unitaf as L plate slots. Um, I don't know if you, you want to add on to that, but essentially what we were approaching with L plate slots is that a field leader could, let's just say, tick any given slot to make it an L plate slot. And what it would do is allow someone that's not, uh, this would predominantly be for tier one slots or tier zero slots and not not, not any other level of tier so in this case designated marksman and i could mark a designated marksman slot as an l plate slot and it would not allow someone who had the requirements to slot in it It would only allow someone that didn't have the requirements now it's important to say that it's not just going to let any old tom dick or harry go into it it's essentially looking for people that have been to the ftx but don't have the combat experience it's not necessarily aiming to fill the slot with somebody who hasn't bothered even going to the FTX, if that makes sense. But it's attempting to help people get onto that first rung of the ladder for that that combat area without actually having to compete with other people and do it in a way that's fair. So we're not 
making all of the marksmanship slots and all about LP slots, but we may always have at least one, for example. And it would also be useful for things like fire team leaders, like when we're trading new fire team leaders, we can put an NCO in a 2IC slot and we can have an L plate fire team lead slot, for example. So just a way of designating a slot and saying this is a new person slot this is like a training slot for this role this is where you get your first combat hours in this in this slot in a controlled environment and then obviously once that person's taken that they would have had the experience they need and therefore they won't need uh that slot anymore and then it's free for the next person on the next door that so on and so forth great yeah as you say i think it's uh it's interesting stuff so i think we've, we've covered that topic um quite well so uh, as promised, let's touch a bit on the Liberation server. Ben, I hear we have a new community-selected map and a new player faction. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I think by, um, by a very far way um, that well, we put out a poll recently um, via a Google Form link, and uh, I think roughly about 75 to 80% uh, voted for Russian faction. Um, so we're going to be playing as the Russians on Chernarus Winter, I believe was uh, the highest rated map. Um, so yeah, that would, that would be a nice change. We've never done a Russian force as a, any sort of operation or liberation. So I think it'll be a, a nice breath of fresh air almost. I think it'll be a, quite a popular server really, because I know for, for a fact that I, I'm quite um, excited about it. I love playing as the as the Russians. So it's nice. I think it's a bit of a breath of fresh air almost. It's, you know, it's different and stuff and it allows people to try different vehicles, you know, what we wouldn't usually do in a, um, in an operation as say. So yeah, I'm pretty excited for it. It's, it's quite a lot of other people are, I mean, as the dates the 30th at the moment, it's probably going to be out next week. Um, I haven't had a chance to touch it this weekend yet, but, um, hopefully we'll get it, uh, out by sort of the, what, probably 31st or just after that probably maybe the first or something um but yeah i'm looking forward to it and i'm sure a lot of other people are yeah i know i'll be uh interested to to try it out it's it's always nice to uh try something a, a little bit different to what we're used to playing um and i think one of the, the potential positives uh as playing as as the russians um is that you get to learn the uh the asset names of, of the Russian military forces and their capabilities so that if and when we come up against them in actual operations, you'll recognize them and you'll know what they're capable of and you get that sort of extra level of, of experience that you may not get in, anywhere else yeah, within Unitas. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like, it's like playing a war game, but playing as the enemy faction to learn which units are good and bad and what their capabilities are, which I think is good. The other positive change, I think, on liberation, even though it's something I really... Um, I really don't touch because otherwise I'd play far too much armor. Is um, we're moving away from, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, Middle Eastern counterinsurgency, uh, which we're now doing on two major campaigns. So it's good to have a bit of variety. And, and on our major campaigns, obviously, whatever we bring in, in addition to Brimstone and Dash, will obviously not be Middle Eastern and counterinsurgency. So it's it's nice that the Liberation Server. Uh, it's moving to the opposite of what we're doing essentially in our campaign space yeah that was the sort of plan for it i mean it's probably as far as you can go away from uh that sort of stuff it's on cherno winter so you know it's going to be a it's, it's, it'll be a nice change uh, i can't remember the last time we did anything winter related um, i don't think we ever have done a sort of a, a campaign on any sort of winter map 
so um it'll be quite fun i, I imagine there'll be a, a fair few people on it because um usually with stuff like that it, people get quite excited for the first uh few months i uh, say a few months month or so and then you uh get the um the solid uh the keen people uh stay on it and complete it but it should uh it probably last us a, a, another a couple of months um just got to make some finishing changes to the map um so i always tweak them before um releasing them as they're not just a straight um copy and paste sort of thing it is does have tweaks done to it so just a few little bits to finish off and yeah it'll be uh be out soon yeah i think i've heard people say recently as well and that may be a good point for us i think we've discussed before is uh we should put a bit more um not not weight behind the liberation but just promote it a bit more i think we've mentioned it a lot in inductions now and it it's a great place we've had a lot of people join union taff in uh, last year sorry that bought steam uh, bought armor in the steam sale and they've never touched it before and you know they're learning literally how to play the game from us and liberation is a good place to to go it uses the same cba settings far as as our main ops essentially so people can get used to those settings and yeah well that's 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 the probably the the main idea behind it really it's a it's a place where people can go outside of operations to sort of almost hone their skills and you know just keep them refreshed almost um you know it's using all our core mods um yeah same cba settings etc so all the medical settings are the same you know so it's great so even if the new guys want to jump on you know a lot of the times you'll have a few um, dedicated players that are experienced you know, and they'll be more than happy, and everyone will be on. Um, obviously, TFR as well. Um, so it's, it is a great place for, especially new people as well, to go and play with the experienced guys, and you know, get used to some faces and stuff. And yeah, it's just a, it's a great platform, really. Yeah, I think further to that as well, it's it's a really good place to uh, expand your um, experience. So, say for example, that you think you might be interested in fire team leading but you're really not too sure and you don't have the rank or the training um liberation is a great place to to go along and uh you know say to the guys there i'd I'd really like to try you know fire team leading and you know i would say you know 9.9 times out of 10 the people who are playing on liberation would be more than happy to to allow you to to lead them so that you can you know get that experience and see if it's something that you're interested in doing similarly you know if you want to fly a helicopter or you know, do logistics or whatever, it gives you a really good opportunity without the pressure um, that you might have in an official operation. And now I'll open the floor up to you guys if there's anything you would uh, like to talk about. I think another thing that we were going to talk about, um, or it's just worth mentioning, is the contribution uh, channels on, on Discord. And for anyone that's, again, unfamiliar with how Unitaf functions, um, uh, we, as Unistaff, obviously manage the roadmap that we have done for, for the last two years. So in the first year that Unitaf existed, we created a roadmap. And I think actually when we did our 2020 survey, uh, I think we completed everything on the 2020 roadmap in 2020, which was great. Or well, 2019, 2020, because Unitaf was formed in March. So um, this year, we obviously did a new roadmap in like June, July. Um, and we're halfway through that now and we've changed it as the year's gone on. But in terms of actually making that happen, a lot of obviously the website stuff happens at a Unistaff level, but it's fair to say we don't do a whole lot. There's so many people in Unitaf that do stuff. Um, 
like Grez making the mod. I don't want to start naming names because there's so many people <laughs> that do things, so that could be a slippery slope. But it's fair to say that we set a direction of the ship and, and there are tens and tens and tens of people in Unitaph and in the p- both past, present and future that make those things happen. On Discord, we've made a few changes um, to make it a bit clearer. So there's a new channel called Contributor Info and that just runs through where you can find the roadmap, uh, where you can make suggestions and how you can make suggestions, where the contribution center is. And if you're not familiar with that, that's a separate website we have, which is like a project management tool and which you can freely browse uh, to, to see. And we've recently added a, what's called a bounty board. And I think that was a suggestion that someone made in the suggestions channel. And the bounty board essentially is a list of tasks like a defined tasks from across all of our teams. So we actually have two types of teams now. So we've got joint task groups, what we call joint task groups, which are the J channels, which cover the sort of 10 major functions of, of UTAF, go J1 through 10. There are no, like we're very keen on not having any permanent staff. So like we don't have job titles or anything. It's completely crowdsourced in those joint task groups. But we've recently added a new uh, set of groups called staff task groups or STGs which are, in a way, they're private groups. And we've, we've they're not new. We've used them before. In fact, when we did the medical review um, in 2020, we had a, an STG. We just never had a name for them back then. Essentially, we identify a problem. We need to change the medical system. We assemble a team of people that are interested in that subject or that are experienced medics or whatever. They go away and they work on that and they report back, essentially, to you, the staff. And we... we working out with them whether they've gone down the right path or whether we want them to relook at it or whatever. And they are temporary teams that we form. And uh, ben, Ben's formed a few STGs this week, and I've, I've formed a few. So maybe we'll just talk about what we're doing with the current outlay of STGs. But what I really wanted to say is that if you want to get involved, if you want to help UNITAF and push what we're doing forward, the best channel to start in is the contributor info section. Now, you can only see that if you're a recruit or higher. So if you're listening to this and you're newer or you're not a recruit yet, that's why you can't see it. But when you're a recruit, we'll have access to that. And that's got all the info in about how you can get stuck in and involved with what we're doing. Feel free to look at the bounty board. And if you if you think you can do something on there, get in touch. Uh, that's ultimately what it's there for. And those STGs are publicly listed. Um, and if you want to join an STG, those STGs do have team leaders. They have like group leaders in them, people that are responsible for delivering those. But they are temporary groups. Uh, ben, you, you had a couple that you wanted to mention, I think, uh, from the new staff task groups. Yeah, so I mean, there's been a couple uh, in the past few days, haven't there, the uh, training map and, and training feedback. So, yeah, perhaps we could um, just go into a little bit, Ben, about you know what that looks like and, and the kind of uh, input and um, uh, support that people can, can give the, the group by uh, joining in on those things. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the I've uh, yeah done two, uh, both regarding uh, training, as I think it's uh, something that we um, need to look at. It's you know, it's one of those the group itself is evolving, and you know we need to evolve with it. So training is definitely one of those things. Um, I, I've made two groups. Uh, one's mainly targeted at the uh, NCOs etc. who run the trainings. Um, you know, to give them the tools that would make um, them more efficient, and you know, making the trainings more consistent as well. Um, we've, you know, got some good ideas from that. You know, there's a, there's also stuff happening in the background in regards to that, and, uh, and that follows on to the training map, which is uh, going to be something that 
I look at the community for um, as we're going to be moving the training map onto Otis as it has a um, good variety of terrains. You know, it's a much bigger area, so you've um, got the room to do uh, better flight training, you know, stuff like that. And it's a, it's a much uh, it's a much better platform to have as a training map compared to Malden, which is a bit compact and small, really. Um, so with that, um, I'll be putting out a post in the next couple of days, most likely. Um, I was gaining the feedback first from the um, NCOs in regards to training, and then it's, I'm pushing it out via the training map. Um, but mainly it's going to be making compositions and stuff um, that we're going to need to, to develop this map and um, you know make it quite advanced. The whole idea behind it is that we're going to, um, you know, with this, make it more consistent and uh, allow the training instructors um, a better platform to be able to give trainings on. Um, and with this, it should hopefully evolve into a, a place where, um, you know, there's a lot less input required from people. So um, we don't need to necessarily get people to Zeus it, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, training instructor can jump on without having to get three, four, five other people to help them. You know, it can be a one to two or three, depending how many people you've got um, to run these, which is, you know, the, the ultimate aim. Um, and I'm quite excited about it, really. It should um, be another thing that UNITAP has that is probably um, one of a kind. Um, and yeah, I, I'm very looking forward to it. I was going to say we we've not changed our our technical training map for well probably eighteen months to be honest and even that got stolen by someone. <laughs> um, so to build on that, I think is the is the right thing, and and it's also part of another STG. But we're also essentially making FTXs more transactional in that rather than just saying we're practicing this thing, uh, we'll have a lesson plan very similar to like what we do with recruit training. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. But this all sort of ties in together um, rather than a, an NCO just picking out a few SOPs. Um, we'll be putting effectively lesson plans together, which uh, an NCO will pick. Um, I want to do this lesson and it will effectively give them a lesson plan to follow. So that should all tie in and make everything more consistent. Yeah. And then there's a group of NCOs in what what's called STG1 now working on Um uh, basically what we're calling advanced core infantry so for the, any everyone obviously has done re, um, recruit core infantry which is sort of two two and a half hour session that's kept the same format roughly probably f for, for the entirety of of our existence uh we, we are reviewing that but we're also we're creating not one i think it's actually going to be three advanced core infantry training so we might call it aci1 aci2 aci3 or whatever that cover sort of advanced movement, advanced military operations and urban terrain, all this sort of stuff, probably to tie into the special forces stuff also that Zero was talking about. And may, maybe even there'll be separate stuff for that, but essentially lesson plans. And NCOs can say, I'm going to do an FTX and it's going to be this lesson plan. And if you went to, um, if you went to the same FTX twice, in theory, it would be exactly the same. And that might sound like an odd thing, but we are ultimately teaching a specific subject so we shouldn't do the same ftx that has the same objectives twice and it be completely different it should be the same so i think that's the purpose behind it and both if you take the other stgs we've got an stg um three which is dealing with the air crew review which we spoke about before and air crew is a little bit different um they for example might need to have a regular day that they meet to train 
and people just turn up to learn the uh, special forces stuff and it may be that there's a badge or something that they get and we've talked about um zero zero about doing something similar with special forces so like there's maybe a special forces training day where people turn up and they they train and they work towards a single tick or qualification and with the air crew it may even be slightly different with the air crew they maybe have a fixed day where they go onto the new training map the oldest training map and they train but rather than just have like an f-16 training it may be that we just have flying instructors there people turn up and they and the instructor say to them hey what is it that you need to work on today and it's a little bit more fluid, a little bit more open as to how they want to practice. Um, so there's obviously a lot that I think we're planning on doing this year with the training system and, and maps and qualifications and stuff. Um, I'm sure we'll get into a lot more detail in later podcasts with it as well. Uh, but that, I think that's maybe a good introduction to the SDGs and trying to formalize that process of delivering these complicated and new um concepts to to the wider group mm. yeah it's just it's a it's just a platform to be able to give people you know the the opportunity to contribute in an area that they're confident in or good at um whereas they might feel like they don't know how to or you know where to go but you should see something um out in the next couple of days um from myself or message me if you're listening to the podcast if you are interested in helping with the training map like i said it'll be mainly compositions and stuff like that that needs doing uh, kill houses you know stuff like that so that's the sort of idea behind it i'd like to extend that to everyone as well which is because because i know it's a thing it's um easy to forget no matter where you are in your unitaf journey at the moment uh, we have a completely open contribution team so it may not seem like it from the outside but we've got for the most part our priorities set if you want to get involved in mission making and leading in uh, training and building training plans, writing guides, whatever. We are completely open. Just come speak to a member of staff or through your chain of command and they'll point you to the right people. Uh, we're happy for anyone to get involved. Obviously, don't go away and work on stuff on your own. It's all about collaborating and working together, making sure that you know whatever we're doing is aligned with the, with the roadmaps and the plans that we've got set as staff. But uh, we love for people to get involved and we encourage it. So if, if you're... If you weren't already aware of that, check out the links that we've mentioned in the podcast and uh, failing that, come come and speak to us and we'll point you in the right direction. Well, that about does it for today. Uh, next time on TAFCast, we'll be looking at the results of the UNITAF annual survey. We'll have questions and answers with a special guest and we'll be looking at the forthcoming merch store. So make sure you catch the next, next TAFCast on unitedtaskforce.net or anywhere you find your podcasts. Thank you very much to Ben and James, and thanks to you guys for listening. I've been Zero, and as always, stay frosty.